As you turn to Luke 22, I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the precious name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. I also bring you greetings from something called Moscovia Bibliescia Cerkov, which means Moscow Bible Church. They meet at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because we meet in a Lutheran cathedral and the Lutherans meet in the morning, which means that they got done with their services a little while ago because Moscow, which does not go on daylight savings time, uh, is seven hours ahead of, of Memphis. So I am on... Uh, staff, pastoral staff there. I'm a pastor of teaching and discipleship. It's a church I used to be senior pastor of in the early 90s. And my wife Jane and I have been overseas for 23 of the last 31 years, and the extra nine years were spent in Memphis, and that's how we got to know your pastor. I remember very well getting a phone call from him in that fantastic voice for the first time. He made me feel like a soprano. I feel, still feel like a soprano compared to him, so you'll have to make the adjustment. And um, it's been a, a great privilege of mine to not only know him, but partner him in, in ministry. And uh, very mindful of what he's been doing the last few days. I'm praying for him. He's praying for me. I hope that you don't give him grudgingly. You know, as believers... <laughs> Our choice is not to go or stay. You do realize that, don't you? That's not the choice of a Christian. The choice is not to go or stay. The choice is to go or send. Those are the only two choices. If you're not going to go, you have to send. Carrie, who was the first great missionary of the modern era in the early 1790s, challenged the, the Baptists of England by saying, if you will hold the rope, I'll go down into the pit. So you need to view yourself as those who hold the rope and, and those who are senders. And when you send, remember this, we don't want anybody you can do without. If you can do without them, we can do without them. We only want those whom you can't do without. The church at Antioch in Acts 13 sent Paul and Barnabas. So if you feel we can't do without him, that's good. That means you're doing the right thing, okay? How's that for an unyielding perspective in defense? Okay. Luke 22, beginning in verse 24, we'll go to verse 30. In honor of God and his word, why don't we stand? Luke 22, verse 24, it's the upper room. Judas has consulted the chief priests and the soldiers are strapping on their armor and the arresting, torturing party is en route. And at that sacred time, the disciples are arguing about which one of them is better. You think this stuff was made up? You think if the Gospels were contrived that they would admit that? That's an indirect proof that it has to be true. Hear the word of God, Luke twenty-two twenty-four. 24. A dispute also arose among them, who? The disciples, as to which of them should be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But it cannot be so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's what we're going to study, the servant king. 
You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Father, though the words may be familiar, uh, they may not be understood. And Father, though the words may be understood, they may not be applied. Grant us understanding. Grant us, grant us compliance and grant us the joy which accrues to the obedient. And may we receive those wonderful things partially as a result of the time we spent together this morning, but all of grace, for in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. I think the first point that, that this passage presents us with in verse 24 is what I, I, ha, I have to call the death of discipleship. And we're not used to that term, but I think it's apt. I think it's accurate. We're certainly are not used to applying such a term to something that Jesus is, is involved in. I mean, the final exam is the next day, and um, it's too late to do much more studying. Nobody ever went to a better seminary than the one they went to for three years. No one ever, ever had a better teacher. No one ever attended a, a more wonderful church. No one was ever presented with more truth. No one had ever beheld a perfect model before, but they did, and it didn't seem to do them any good. Now, let's be honest. If we're Christians, a non-Christian may arrogantly assume that Somehow he's equal to or better than Jesus. But if you're a believer, we know we can't come within a thousand miles of the perfection of Jesus of Nazareth. But if we're to be honest, we may not say this out loud, but we think we're better than this, don't we? I mean, you may think you're better than the person sitting next to you, but you're not going to say it. You're not going to say it out loud. And if you do say it, you're not going to argue about it publicly, insisting that you really are better. That's what they're doing. Can you imagine? They had lived with him for three years. And the only thing they missed was the boat. There are many dynamics of discipleship. Let me name three of the primary ones. One, and this is what the word means, is the orientation of a learner to a teacher. They haven't learned anything. And the semester's over. One is the dynamic of a follower to a leader. They're not following. They're wandering off the path. One is the dynamic of a servant to a master. They're not serving. He's the one who washed the feet. Three or four years ago when I was with you, we talked about that. We talked about how in John 2, at the wedding feast in Cana, there, was, um, there were plenty of servants, but there was no wine. And at the last feast, this feast, which was just celebrated a few verses before the verse we read from, verses we read from, there was plenty of wine, but there were no servants. There's only one servant. And he wasn't a disciple. He was, the, he was the master. So they missed it. At every count, they missed it. At this point, discipleship is dead. Discipleship dies before Jesus dies. You remember just after Jesus was born, the angel, the herald angel over Bethlehem proclaims these great words about the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. What do you think the herald angel would have said over this thing? 
What do you think the angels were talking about? Surely they were talking about this. We're not told what they said. One day we'll know. One day we'll know their names. And we'll understand their language. Maybe they said something like this. Shame on the disciples at the lowest. Surely this is a nadir. Surely this is the the dead sea of discipleship. Jesus is about to die, and they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Unbelievable. And so the, the teacher begins to teach. And he says, you know, you're acting like human kings. You want glory. You want, you want exaltation for yourselves. The kings of the Gentiles act like this. They exercise lordship over others. You know, Luther and Calvin used to talk about the prophet, the, the, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Here's what I've noticed about men. Men, husbands, you will forgive me for this, because not because you want to, but because you're commanded to. One thing I've noticed off topic about husbands is that they love that role of prophet and king over their wives. They're not too much into priesthood. But being a king, now that's, boy, that's, that's something that appeals, isn't it? And Jesus said, yeah, that's what the world is like. That's what people want to do. And then he presses, thirdly, the urgency of a Christian counterculture. That's human culture, but that's not the heavenly culture. And he says in verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, something else for you. Uh, few people in this room have been in other rooms that I've been in, smaller rooms, smaller numbers of people, sometimes with just a handful of people where I've been on this extended visit. I had some surgery in July, and I, I never meant to be in Memphis this long. I'll go back, God willing, on October 5th. Uh, and, and some of you have heard me talk about this business of how counterintuitive Jesus is. By counterintuitive, I mean he does the opposite of what we would do. He does the opposite of what any normal human being would do for the simple reason that he's not a normal human being. Jesus is counterintuitive because his father was counterintuitive. You want an example to help you grasp the concept? His father said to Gideon, you can't win the battle because your army is too big. Counterintuitive, isn't it? His prophet, before he called down fire on the altar, Elijah on Mount Carmel, getting ready for the combustion, what does he do with the altar? Do you remember? He floods it with water. Isn't that what you do when you're getting ready to light a fire? If you want the supreme example of counterintuitiveness in Jesus' life, and by the way, almost everything Jesus said... Almost everything Jesus did was counterintuitive. And we don't notice it because we know the stories. Because we're familiar with the stories, because we are the heirs and the beneficiaries of the Judeo-Christian tradition, because we grew up where the Bible was taught, nothing surprises us. It doesn't surprise us because we've heard it all our lives. And we don't sufficiently gauge the mind-blowing abrasion and shock 
that the words and deeds of Jesus brought when they were first uttered and performed. In John 9, there's a man born blind. Jesus is going to restore his sight. What does he do? He rubs mud in his eye. Isn't that what you would do if you were going to help someone see? You see what I mean by counterintuitiveness. And Jesus, who is always counterintuitive, presses the necessity of a counterculture. Yes, human kings live like this, but it cannot be so with you. You cannot be a cultural captive. There must be a distinction between you and the rest of the culture. There must be an obvious distinction between those who are saved and those who are lost, those who are earthly and those who are heavenly. And that's what he means when he says, but not so with you. He then teaches them about the true measure of greatness. Now, let me, let's do the practical application here, okay? Not at the end. Let's do it right here. You and I as believers are only allowed to make two comparisons. We're only allowed to compare ourselves in two ways. You're not allowed to compare yourself with the people you went to high school with. Well, how are they doing compared to how I'm doing? You're not allowed to compare yourself with with your brothers and sisters or your cousins. You're not allowed to compare yourself with your colleagues. You're not allowed to compare yourself with your competitors. You're not allowed to compare yourself with your neighbor. You're not allowed to compare yourself with your wife's old boyfriend. You're not allowed to compare yourself with your husband's first wife. You're not allowed to make those comparisons. Did you know that? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. We are not bold to compare or contrast ourselves with others. We're not allowed to do that. There are two comparisons you can make. You can compare yourself with yourself. You know, you've given your, if you have anything, you may not have anything, which is fine. It's not, it's not bad to be poor. That's counterintuitive too, isn't it? In Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. We can theologize that. We can make that okay. He says blessed are the poor. We don't like that, do we? We spend all our working lives proving we don't like it. And even if we agree with it, which we don't, it's a blessedness we don't want any part of. And if we have anything, we employ somebody to take care of it, a financial planner or or a broker, and we measure his performance. And if our assets don't grow, we get another broker. What would we do if God compared our growth in the assets as an asset to him? Dear God. And we are allowed to compare ourselves with ourselves. Am I growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I love him more, serve him better? Do I or do I not? And if not, why not? You know, we're in a war. You do know that, don't you? Are our weapons clean? Is our armor on? Do we go straight toward the enemy or do we run away from him and hide from him? 
Thank God for Muslims. If it weren't for Muslims, we may never have a chance to die for Jesus. And you know, if, if, if our commander regarded us like human commanders regard their soldiers, I would have already been shot at dawn. It's okay to compare ourselves with ourselves. You know what? It's okay to compare ourselves with Jesus because he's the model. We have to look at him and then look at ourselves. And if that doesn't keep us humble and on our face, nothing will. If we compare ourselves with others, there can only be one of two outcomes. Both of them are bad. One is that we, we feel, well, gosh, I could never know the Bible like him. Well, gosh, I could never be an elder like him. Well, gosh, I could never lead somebody to Christ like her. And that's bad. It's bad to feel bad that we can't measure up to some human standard. Don't do it. You were never meant to do it. Or we may think I can do it better. And I love Jesus more than he does. Or I'm at church three times a week. She's only at church two times a week. And then we actually feel better. And that's worse. Because there's nothing worse than pride. Young people, keep yourselves pure. Virginity is a precious thing. And to indulge that precious delight before God's design is to diminish yourselves, what you can receive and what you can give. It's like putting on the ring in the trilogy. It's exhilarating, but once you take it off, you are diminished. You're less substantial. There's less of you there. And so we come to the Lord and we, we ask ourselves the question, is there more, uh, is there more of Jesus and, and is there less of me? The point I was making, which I lost for a minute, I'll come back to it. There's only one thing, well, there are few things worse than impurity, but there are some things worse in impurity. And one is pride, that I'm so much more moral than that other girl or that other man, Okay. There are perils on both sides. So Jesus says, well, here's how you can compare. Here's how you can gauge greatness. Am I serving more people today than I served last year? Am I a servant? Do I want to be a servant? No, i tell you what I want to do. I want to go to the better restaurants. I want to go to the restaurants where somebody meets me and says, is this your first time here? Who's got a tie on and who takes me to the table, the maitre d', and where one person comes and asks me if I want something to drink, and another person comes and asks me if I want something to eat, and then someone else serves, and then I pay someone else. That's what I want. I want to be the one who reclines at table and who is served. And that's the way I gauge whether I'm getting to the place where I want to be. And Jesus says, you've got it all backwards. The one who's great is the one who's serving, not the one being served. So, practical application, are you serving anybody? 
Who are you serving? By the way, I don't have the gift of being a servant. It's the greatest gift. It's the least of my gifts. I'm 66 years old, and nobody's found it yet in me. I promise you, you, I hope you come see me sometime in Russia or in Germantown. You're liable to come to my house, and I'm liable to say, would you like some tea? Well, yes, great. While you're up, could you get me some? I mean, that's just kind of who I am, okay? I'm not saying, my goodness, I hope you can be like me one day. Heaven forbid. This is the model that Jesus, that the Lord Jesus is setting for us. Are you serving anybody? Who are you serving? How many are you serving? How well are you serving them? How are you serving them? Do they know that you're serving them? How will they know? You want to be great? We've got to answer those questions, don't we? And the exam is not set by me. It's not set by Dr. Young. It's set by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then as he self-identifies... He says, you know, I'm a servant. That's why I'm here. That's why I came, to show you what a servant looks like. It's amazing, isn't it? How counterintuitive is that? I didn't come to vanquish the Romans. I didn't come to reign this time. I came to serve. I'm among you as one who serves. And then he pays them. You know, I think I'm going to mention this, even though it might take too much time. Before I leave this business, and I'll come back to it, of Christ's counterintuitiveness intuitiveness, and, and, and this related reality of how paradoxical this is. We're going back to Russia on October 5th, God willing. That's Jonathan Edwards' birthday. Jonathan Edwards was probably the greatest mind ever born on this continent. He wasn't born in the United States because there wasn't any United States. He was born during the colonial period in the 18th century. My favorite sermon, and I don't know his sermons like I should, is a sermon from Revelation 5, the passage at the throne where the elder at the throne says to John, the writer, behold the Lion of Judah. Look at the Lion of Judah. And John says, and when I looked, I saw a lamb. The elder said, look at a lion. And I did look. But when I looked at the lion, I saw a lamb. You know what, Edwards, now, we don't think and talk like Jonathan Edwards preaches and, and writes. So, but if we isolate the words, we can figure out what he means. He called that the admirable conjunction of diverse excellences in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? The diverse, the different, the diverging, the contrasting conjunction coming together. Things that are diverse have come together. Things that are opposites have rested in the same place. You know, in that darkness called Hinduism, which blights the Indian continent, in their iconography, that is in the graphic depictions of their millions of gods, there are combinations of of opposites, and they're hideous. They're grotesque. One of the most famous ones is the, the trunk and body of a man and the, and the head of an elephant. I've got a friend, his, his daughter uh, uh, has dabbled in Eastern religion, and I often visit him, and when I visit, they put me in her room because she lives in a different city, and she's got a picture of this hideous Hindu god. I dread going there because of that. 
And you know what? If you and I tried to cobble together a lion and a lamb, it would look, it wouldn't work. But it works in Jesus, doesn't it? And it's not grotesque, is it? It's admirable. The admirable conjunction of diverse excellences in the man, Christ Jesus. He is the reigning king. He is God Almighty, come in the flesh. God the second person. God incarnate. And yet he says, I'm among you as one who serves. And then he pays them an intolerable compliment. Why Why is it intolerable? Because it must have convicted and embarrassed them. It's true, but it doesn't feel like it's true. It doesn't even look to us like it's true. But what does he do? Now, at a moment like that, if you had found your students arguing over which one of them was the greatest, after inculcating moral and ethical and spiritual truth for three years, you're about to leave them, you're going to die the next day, you're going to be hung up on the cross the next morning, you're never going to eat again, you're never going to sleep again until somebody tortures you to death, and they're arguing over who's the greatest, what would you say to them? And more to the point, if you knew they were all about to abandon you, what would you say to them? Well, here's what he says. Talk about counterintuitive. He says, you know, verse 28, you are those who stayed with me during my trials. Can you imagine that? They're all about to run away. And he's complimenting them. They're the ones who hang with him during his trials. How can he do that? Because he sees them through the prism of his own blood. The same way God can accept someone as spiritually obnoxious as me in his presence forever, because he sees me through the filter of Christ's own blood. Because he doesn't see what they have been. He doesn't even see what they're going to be in the next few hours. He sees what he shall make them. I'm very interested in why people don't go to church. I mean, I understand it. I mean, let's face it. A secular weekend is delicious, isn't it? A ball game. So many people out jogging on the way here, I noticed. Leisurely time with the papers or maybe a video or a film and maybe eating out, and how bothersome, how distracting, how unattractive to make the choice you made this morning and to interrupt the delicious consistency of a secular Sunday. That's one reason, because the, the other gives them more pleasure than what we're doing right now. But there are other reasons, reasons that have to do with us. You see, they believe that the church is ugly. They believe that we believe fairy tales. They believe that we're inconsistent and hypocritical, guilty as charged. And they look at us, and they're not attracted to our company. We are ugly to them. And you know what? Um, we've We've all seen ugly things in the church, haven't we? But there's something about Jesus... He sees how beautiful he's going to make us. 
He's making us beautiful through the washing of the water of the Word. Ephesians 5. He's going to present us as a dazzling bride when that New Jerusalem descends at the end of the last book of the Bible. And you know what? When we become beautiful, I will be unrecognizable. But that's how he sees me. Because he sees me through his blood. And the moment before they run away, he says, you're the ones who stuck with me. And that's why I'm going to give you a throne. Do you notice the contrast here? There's the contrast between the false kings, the kings of the Gentiles, and the, the true king, the king who's the servant. And there's also the contrast of the kind of kings they want to be and the kinds of kings they will be, the kinds of kings he will make them. i got to go. My time is, is fled, but let me just... Let me do this really quick. Some of you heard me tell this story. It's a painful story, but it's a funny story. It's an embarrassing story. I used to pastor a a church on the North Carolina coast, and there was a young Marine's wife. We called her Rocky. Her name was Roxanne, and she was a new Christian. I baptized her. She was my secretary. She's from Maine. Her husband's a distinguished professor of mathematics at Appalachian State University today, an elder in in a PCA church. But they were brand new Christians. I baptized them. And I, can't, and I was leaving to go to the church one day, and my three-year-old, Katie, said, Dad, when I get to heaven, can I sit on Jesus' throne? And I said, no, Katie. And she said, why? I said, because that's Jesus' throne. And she said, not even for a little while? And I said, no. And she said, not even for a little girl. And I said, Katie, stop it. No, don't ever think about that again. And I hugged her, and I drove the nine miles to where our church was, and it kind of bothered me. And when I walked in, I, my secretary was sitting there, and I told her about it. And she said, and I quote, Oh, if you said that, you must not know the Bible. <laughs> well, it's true, but I didn't realize it as much then as I do now. And I looked at her, and I said, What did you say? She said, if you told her that, you must not know the Bible. I said, woman, what are you talking about? I was a campus crusade baby, so I had, as soon as I became a Christian, I I memorized Revelation 3.20 because that's the proof text for Law 4, the, the closer verse, when you're trying to invite people to receive Christ. That's the verse where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, it's a pity I stopped reading there. Because the next verse says, Jesus talking, says, The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. I walked over to the phone. After she showed me that verse, and I picked up the phone. I dialed my home number. Jane answered the phone. I said, let me talk to Katie. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Sweetheart, I got some good news. 
And the gospel is good news. Is it not? You're going to eat at my table. You're going to sit on thrones. You're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me close in this. It's, it's very counterintuitive to think that the king of the universe would come to be a waiter. Just as it's counterintuitive to think that the, the, that same God in Matthew 8, when the impetuous applicant for discipleship says, Lord, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. I'm going to come live with you. And he says, oh, really? Where do I live? You do realize I'm homeless, don't you? You do realize I've taken a spot below the animals. The birds, they got nests. The foxes, they got holes. But you know what? The Son of Man, he, he, he doesn't have a place to lay his head. Let me tell you the most, and this is the last thing I'll tell you. Let me tell you the most counterintuitive thought that can, could be conceived. As a matter of fact, it cannot be conceived. It was never conceived by a human because it could not be imagined. It's beyond the scope of human imagination. It can only be revealed. It was conceived, but it was conceived not by a human. I'll tell you by analogy. Imagine that in an, in an ancient empire, maybe Assyria, maybe Babylon, maybe Persia, maybe Rome, there's a rebellion in a distant province. The emperor summons his commanders. He says, those ungrateful wretches have risen up in rebellion against us. What shall we do? They've killed our ambassadors and our representatives. And the general, one general raises his hand. He said, speak, general. Sire, I know what we should do. We should send your only son and heir unarmed into the enemy camp let them humiliate him, spit on him, beat him, and then torture him to death over a period of six hours, and then those miserable wretches will know how much we love them. Now, that could not have been invented, could it? It could not have been invented because it could not have been imagined. You cannot invent that which you cannot imagine. And that is unimaginable. Because it's unimaginable, it's never happened. But it did happen once, didn't it? Not in an earthly empire, but an empire divine. Jesus died on the cross so that God could look at sinners like us. First, God looked at a perfect, loved, infinitely loved son like him and saw our sins, which were imputed to him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be regarded as sin so that we, so that God could look at us and see his lovely perfections. God punished him with wrath. He ingested all the just wrath of a holy God for our unholiness on the cross so that God could love us as if we had been as perfect as he 
That's the gospel. Who could refuse that? Don't refuse it, friend. Oh, dear friend, don't refuse it. Receive it by faith and be saved. Heavenly Father, we pray that your same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be published would bring this thing called regeneration, would renovate minds and hearts so that these words could be received by sinners to be true. And then, Father, having worked your convicting work, worked your converting work, and, Father, for those of us who walk in this room having believed these precious truths, progress us in this thing called sanctification. Make us to look less like ourselves and more like Jesus, that we may be among our fellows as one who serves. Christ's own name we ask it.